0: Why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And this is where we should begin. Good. These were the heads of the families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok and Pulau, Hezron and Kami. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jamal, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shor, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. Good. Now, the sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amran, Ishar, Hebron, and Uzziel. Kohath hath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amran lived 137 years. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzephan, and Sithri. And to our third chart, Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abihassaf. These were the Korahites. Clan. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. And these were the heads of the Levite families clan by clan. And now to the text. Are you with me? <laughs> It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out." Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 year old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Milton. Brilliant. Uh, We're not looking at the genealogy. I just thought it would be fun to make him read it. Um, I I thought on a Sunday when we're having a dedication to a child, we'd give some prospective names to other parents-to-be that may be out there. No, the, the, um, the genealogy is very important in what we're looking at, and um, but it was Milton's idea and he did it in terms of putting it up in the slides in the genealogy, because when, of course, Milton said, now back to the text, we were still in the text, but he just put it in visual form, which I think was brilliant in terms of helping us kind of understand it. Uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll see if there's anything at all we can get out of these uh, strange verses. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's a lovely morning outside. It's been a lovely morning inside as we've rejoiced with the Bevan family. And uh, this morning, I don't just give you thanks for the weather or our lovely country or even the gift of children or fellowship. I thank you for your word. You've given us every part of it and you speak to us through it. And I pray that now as we uh, think on words which may seem so odd to our ears living so many years later and in a very different place, that your spirit would open our hearts and minds so that we could take truth from them, be encouraged by them, challenged or changed through them. So please work within us now. I should explain a little bit about why we're looking at these verses because uh, I've actually been doing a series in Acts for a while. We're up to Ananias and Sapphira, which is a passage in Acts that a number of people at church have been saying, I can't wait till you get to Ananias and Sapphira, and yet I've put it off for a couple of weeks. And um, some people, uh, very unkindly I think, thought that I was chickening out of doing that passage. It's not, uh, but it's because we're chopping and changing a lot. I'm away next week. There's a a team of six of us are going to Methven to... um, uh, they're doing a camp day out there. And if you'll remember, those that have been at our church camps over the last three years, there's been a group from the Methven Anglican Church who've come out every camp and they've, looked after our ch- they've stayed at the camp and looked after our children's program-, program the whole time. And this is a way of us going and saying thank you. It doesn't pay them back, but it's just a way of showing our appreciation to them. So we're away next, uh, next week. Um, so I didn't want to go into Acts, back out of Acts, back into Acts, back out of Acts. None of that explains, though, why this passage in particular. It's not an obvious one, is it? Uh, Here's my thinking, such as it is. Last week we did a one-off because it was Reformation Sunday. It was 500 years of the Reformation, and we looked at one of the big issues that Christians wrestle with. How can I be sure where I stand with the Lord? It's something that Christians always wrestle with. They'll, They'll go through periods of life where they don't really think about it or care about it, but there'll be other times when it weighs on them deeply. And there are some Christians who think that, oh, well, I think God loves me now because I'm doing okay, but then I don't think he loves me as much now because I'm not doing as well. And, the, and you're kind of up and down and all over, over the place in terms of their relationship with the Lord. So, and we, we recognize that every single one of us will have certain times in life, perhaps when we're going through really rough times, perhaps when we know the end is close, where we worry with this and it's a, it's a weight, it's a burden. And so we, we looked at that question. And if you weren't here last week, and it's something that interests you, please go online and and go onto the website and have a listen to that talk. But today I wanted to do uh, another issue that Christians sometimes wrestle with. And the issue is, how can I serve the Lord? And the reason some people wrestle with this is because there's a recognition that I'm not what I wish I was. I don't. I look around, I see others who I think could do lots of things for the Lord, but I don't seem to have those gifts. I look at others, and they seem to be in situations and contexts where they can do much for the Lord, but uh, I'm not the same. That's what I want to look at. Sometimes we look out and we see kind of super Christians and think, well, I, what have I got to offer? And uh, it can feel quite deflated. And that can actually spiral into therefore feeling unworthy, not really looking at doing anything, and a whole range of things. So we're going to think about this issue in the light of the reading that Milton just brought to us, in the light of Moses and Aaron, two of the great Old Testament heroes. And I hope by the end of our time you can see why I chose this passage. I do want to say I think Moses and Aaron are two of the absolute great heroes, combinations in the Old Testament. Can you think of a greater tag team Uh, from ancient Israel in the Old Testament. You've got Ruth and Naomi. They're pretty good. You've got, I guess, David and Jonathan, or David and his slingshot. That's a pretty good twosome as well. But then you've got Moses and Aaron. I've got them as the dynamic duo. They are, for me, Batman and Robin, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And the greatest achievement of this wonderful tag team is their rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, That's what this section of the Bible where Milton just read from is all about. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and it's going to be Moses and to a lesser extent Aaron who bring the Israelites out, who free God's people. And our passage today is the one immediately before that rescue. It's the very verses just before the famous ten plagues start and the rescue begins. And I'd like you to focus on, as we go through this reading, How this great tag team is presented. What should we make of them from the way they're spoken of in this section of God's word? So I hope you've got the context. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. God is going to free them. And Moses is going to be the key guy backed up by Aaron. But Moses has been very nervous about his role all the way through. He didn't really want to do it. Do you remember? He was quite reluctant when God asked him. He kept giving excuses, which were, quite, I think, quite lovely and humble. Um, but it kind of ended up, pleasing someone else. That was his heart. He's nervous about serving the Lord. And you can see why. By the time this reading took place, he'd gone to the Israelites and said, The Lord has appointed me to bring you up out of Egypt. And things have gone how for the Israelites since then? Worse. So the Israelites hate Moses now. And now he's being told to go in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, the leader of Egypt, and to say, let the Israelites go. Didn't work well when Moses went to God's people. How's it going to go for him now in front of Pharaoh? So we pick up the story, Alex, if we can, in chapter 6, verse 10, and we see God tell Moses, go and speak to Pharaoh. But Moses is again nervous. Verse 12, he says, the Israelites haven't listened to me. Why would Pharaoh? He says, I speak with faltering lips. No one's going to listen to me. Then in verse 13, God commands Moses and Aaron to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, and it's then that we move into the genealogy that Milton uh, read so well. Here's the family tree of the Israelites. And do you remember the family tree of the Israelites? You've got Abraham, who's the patriarch. He's got a son, Isaac. He's got a son, Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons, and it's those 12 sons that the rest of the, the 12 tribes of Israel come from. Now, we'll come back to the genealogy in a moment, but I want you to know, when you you come across this, you can just skip the genealogy. Don't skip the genealogies. Stop and think about them for a moment, because they will nearly always raise some questions. Firstly, why would anyone name their son Phineas? No, Phineas is a good name. Firstly, why is the genealogy here? Think about that for a moment. Why is it inserted in chapter 6, verse 13? It doesn't make sense. We've just been told that God's told Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak about it, and then suddenly we're in a family tree. Why? It might have made sense at the beginning of Exodus. You get the family tree, and then you move into the narrative. But the narrative is broken up with the insertion of this genealogy. Why? Secondly, why is it a limited genealogy? Uh, Milton pointed out really well in the slides because you can see, verse 14, it says, is the heads of the families, and it starts with Reuben first. Here's, the, here's the Reuben's line. Then verse 15, it lists the descendants of Simeon. Then verse 16, it lists the descendants of Levi. Now, if you were reading it through, uh, verse by verse, you'd be going, so far, so good. This makes sense. We're obviously getting a family tree of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Because the oldest one is Reuben, who we've been told. The next one is Simeon, who we've been told. The next one is Levi, as we've been told. Except it doesn't go on. It stops with Levi. It only goes Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Stop. Levi is the last of the 12 mentioned, and it only expands on Levi's line. Why? Well, again, we'll come back to it. But some of it, I'm sure, must be, because of verse 26 and 27, where we see that Moses and Aaron come from the line of Levi. That must be at least part of the purpose of having this genealogy there. Well, park those questions about the genealogy for a moment, then we'll keep moving on. Then in verses 28 to 30, we get almost a word-for-word recap of the first two verses of our reading, verse 11 and 12. God speaks to Moses again. Moses replies again, asking, Why would Pharaoh listen to him? Because I've got faltering lips. Why the repetition? Again, we'll come back to it. Then in chapter 7, we see God speak to Moses. And basically, God... I mean, God... Moses had it laid on a plate for him, really. God says, look, Moses, don't worry. I'll do it all. I'm in charge... I'll do it all. I'll make you like God to Pharaoh, he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my miraculous signs and wonders. I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my people out. Over and over, do you see what he does? He gives Moses confidence. He says, I'm in charge. I'll look after things. I'll take care of it. Now, we haven't got time this morning to think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. A lot of people have got questions about that. They're good questions. You you want to wrestle with it. And the only thing I've got time this morning to point out is when you read through all these chapters, it says a number of times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it also says a number of times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so we're getting both truths. Pharaoh is responsible for his actions and choices. He hardens his heart. But God is sovereign and in charge and in a way that we can never quite comprehend. He's in control of all things and so we can speak of God hardening his heart. But the focus in this section is God being in charge. Moses can relax because God's going to do his work. And then verse 6 tells us Moses and Aaron did exactly what the Lord commanded them. Uh, Then verse 7 tells us the ages of Moses and Aaron. And we see that the genealogy had the right order. Naming Aaron first, then Moses. I think this is a surprise. This is a surprise if you're reading through the book of Exodus, because if you're reading through the book of Exodus, we know from chapter two. Do you remember the backstory of Moses, where he was, um, they were killing the Israelite uh, baby boys, so that he was put into the basket and uh, the Pharaoh's daughter found him, and Mum ends up raising him, things like that. We know from chapter two that Moses had an older sister, but we'd never heard that Aaron was his older brother, and I think it's natural when you read it to think that Moses is the oldest one until you get to this verse. He's not. He's the junior. He's only 80. He's got an 83-year-old brother. Again, it's worth asking, why are we just being told the ages now? Why the genealogy? Why the repetition? Why the ages? What's going on here? Then in the last section, we see the the next meeting between the brothers and Pharaoh. God's told them what to do, and Moses and Aaron, again, verse 10, do it. And we see this um, battle of the snakes. you remember Robot Wars, that program that used to be on? No one else remembers it. Well, this is battle of the snakes. We expect to see Aaron's staff turn into a snake when it's thrown on the ground, because we've seen it before in Exodus. We don't, perhaps, expect to see the wise men and sorcerers of Egypt do the same, but they can a clear reminder here, evil has power. We see it here, uh, but we've always got to remember this with evil. It's not an even battle that the staff of Aaron and the Lord's power is clearly greater than the power of evil. Then our passage finishes with uh, God's words to Moses being seen to come true because Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He will not listen. And then if you carry on reading in Exodus, we'll see the 10 plagues and the rescue of the Israelites by God. So you can see it's a, it's a big passage. There's lots in it there's just two things I'd like us to focus on this morning and take from these words. And the first is this. The amazing thing about Moses and Aaron is that they were called at all. Think about that for a moment. The amazing thing about Moses and Aaron is that they were called at all. I think this is what we're supposed to take from the strange insertion of the genealogy, the repetition of Moses' faltering lips, and the sudden interest in the ages of the brothers. Let me explain. Why is Moses and Aaron's genealogy there? I've already said I'm sure part of it is because they're saying where Moses and Aaron come from. If it wasn't focused on them, it would have gone on to list the other nine sons of Jacob and their heads of clans and things. It doesn't because it's wanting to show Moses and Aaron, where they fit in. That's the purpose of it. And where do they fit in? What tribe do they come from? Levi. And what should it mean to us when we hear they come from the tribe of Levi? Well, you might think that coming from the tri- tribe of Levi was positive because we know that from the tribe of Levi came the priests. They were the priestly tribe, but they're not yet. At this point, the tribe of Levi has no priest. That's going to start with Aaron. Uh, in a couple of chapters. He's going to be the beginning of that. At the moment, there's no priest from the tribe of Levi. So at this point, when you're reading through the Bible, how would the tribe of Levi Levi be thought of? Here's a clue. Not positively. Not positively at all. Levi is not mentioned as much in the book of Genesis as some of his better-known brothers. Reuben and, uh, is known a bit better. Jude is certainly known a bit better. Joseph and Benjamin are known a lot better. Levi really only crops up in one pretty disturbing incident, which is in Genesis chapter 34, where his sister Dinah is raped. And when you read through chapter 34, so incensed is Levi and Simeon that they lie to the man who's done this terrible offense, they go to the village where he is, and they not only kill him, but they kill every male in the village. Their actions, even if you think there's some justification for it, go well beyond what was just or reasonable. And Jacob, their father, if you remember this from Genesis, rebukes them for their terrible act. And the next time that Levi is mentioned by name in the book of Genesis is at the end of Genesis, where Jacob, the father of the 12 boys, is on his deathbed, and he gives his final blessings to his sons. And nearly all the sons get good blessings. Good things will happen from you, my boy. You know, that kind of thing. But this is what he says to Levi and to Simeon. This is Jacob's words. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they've killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them, dot, dot, dot. So, when you read the genealogy of Moses uh, and Aaron, you're not supposed to see that they come from the tribe of Levi and go, oh, how lucky, they're from Levi, they're from the priest's tribe. No, 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 it's the exact opposite. Could they come from a worse tribe? Could they come from a worse beginning? There's the genealogy. Then, as I said, the genealogy, both before it and after it, has this strange section where we keep getting told that Moses doesn't want to go to speak to uh, Pharaoh because he's got faltering lips. Now, if you think faltering is a bit odd, because we don't tend to use that phrase anymore, if you've got your Bible there with you, instead of just looking at the PowerPoint, if you've got your Bible there open, just have a look at the footnotes uh, for that particular verse. And what you will see is, that under verse 12 and verse 30, when it uses the word faltering, he says he keeps saying, I'm a man with faltering lips. It literally says, for I am a man with uncircumcised lips. That's what he says. And that's a very important phrase that he uses. Because to be circumcised is to be devoted to the Lord to be set aside to the Lord. It's the key sign of being one of God's people, a son of Abraham. And we'd read already read in the book of Exodus that Moses had a difficulty here. Where did we see it? We saw it with his son, who wasn't circumcised. And in chapter 4, there's this really odd kind of section where God is angry with Moses because his son's not uh, 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 circumcised. Even worse than that, Moses annoys his wife, Zipporah, and it's a terrible kind of scene because he hasn't done circumcision. And Moses here twice says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. He's saying he's not a godly man. He's not a good man in that kind of sense. So you've got he's from the wrong tribe. He's not a great kind of guy in and of himself. And then our passage drops the other bombshell that he's the younger brother of Aaron, where we would have assumed that he was the older brother with the position of honor and respect and leadership, as all eldest siblings hold. So then when you put that together, this odd thing where I can see about a third of the congregation nodding in agreement with that statement, and the rest kind of disappointed. So do you see what, when you get to verses 26 and 27, can we have chapter 6, 26, 26, 27 up? How do we read them? They're words of amazement. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was that same Moses and Aaron, the ones from the tribe of Levi, the one with the uncircumcised lips, the one who's not even the eldest brother in his own family. It was these guys. And what has God called these two likely lads to do? Chapter 7, verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. This passage should be an enormous surprise. These are not the men, particularly Moses, that you would expect to be doing such a task. They've got the wrong pedigree. They've got the wrong background. They've got the wrong gifts. They've got the wrong ages. They're in the wrong state of life. And yet they're the ones through whom such good is going to come. It's like Darth Vader proving to be the hero, (laughs) the one that you would least expect it, to be the hero at the end of the story. It's like Gollum ending up being the one that puts the ring into the the fire of Mount Doom. I've lost a lot of people here, but those that know know where I'm going. It's totally unexpected. Moses and Aaron, they're the guys you're you're calling for the task? And the point I want us to take out from this is God calls the unlikely, and we should give thanks that he does. He's called you and I. We may not have been the first choice. you were looking around, I'll have, not him. Uh, he calls the unlikely. Paul among Corinthians puts it this way. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because we're so great. It's because of him. It's what Jeff was saying in his, in his interview. Aren't they great words? We can very easily look with human eyes at ourselves and those around us. We mustn't. God calls the unlikely, whether it's the young shepherd boy whose brothers are all big strapping lads, but it's actually him who's going to be the king, or the one from the tribe of Levi with the uncircumcised lips who goes on to be as God to Pharaoh, or the young man who cheered on the stoning of Stephen and persecuted Christians who's the one who's going to go out and convert Gentiles around the world. God calls the unlikely and uses them for his purposes. We need to remember that. It'll stop us if we think too highly of ourselves, but it will also stop us if we think too lowly of ourselves and think we've got nothing to offer the Lord. The amazing thing about Moses and Aaron is that they were called at all. Secondly, and much more quickly, I'd just like to see, point out what the success of Moses and Aaron was and what their success is, their faithfulness. The success of Moses and Aaron is their faithfulness. Uh, You and I are probably not going to have the same task that Moses and Aaron did, to go and see Pharaoh and to pull the Israelites out. We're not going to have the same task as David or Paul, but we can still do what they did because what's the thing that Moses and Aaron are commended for in these verses repeatedly? The, The key thing is, chapter 7, verse 6 and 10, Alex, if it's there, they did as the Lord commanded them. That was their success. Just they followed him honoured him, tried to live as he would want them to. Moses and Aaron are not portrayed, despite what I said at the beginning, they're not portrayed as Batman and Robin who do the kaboos and the bows and the bams and incredible things. They're just portrayed as human beings who, even when they don't want to and they feel weak and they feel ill-equipped, serve the Lord faithfully, try and do the right thing. People who trusted what God said he would do do, and obeyed him. Their success was their faithfulness, even when they didn't want to. I pray that that's how we will see success as Christians today. Success is being faithful. I worry that we measure our success as Christians in terms of results. I've got great Bible knowledge, so I must be a good Christian. Uh, I've led 19 people to the Lord, so I must be a good Christian. Uh, the Lord's blessed me with wealth and health, so I must be a good Christian. Uh, there are ministers of churches. I must be a good minister because I've got a big church and lots of money rolling in. And how do, how do we measure success as a Christian? That we're faithful in the small things and the big things. It's God who takes care of the results, as Jeff said this morning. We, we don't take care of the results. We just seek to live in a way that pleases him in the situations that he's placed us, even when we don't feel able or on top of things, that we trust and obey, that we repent and believe the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is our delight uh, doing the pleasure of our Lord? That's what I want to ask us this morning. Is being godly people full of grace and truth our success? I hope it is. Paul, I don't think, was a nobody. Yeah, it said um, uh, Paul actually had a very privileged background, good religious training, education to kind of uh, be aware of and all those sorts of things. But even Paul, who I think was in some ways a kind of super person, he said this about himself when he went to Corinth. Do you remember? When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Most of us aren't Paul, and we should be encouraged that the Lord can use us, and we just want to be faithful. If you're here this morning and you're a bit more like Paul, still remember all you can do is, the best you can do is know Jesus and live and love those around in the light of him. It's God's greatness who does things through his people that we want to focus on. It's what he's achieved in Christ that we want to point people to and witness to. To be successful is to trust the Lord and be faithful. And so from these verses, as I wrap up, showing us the dynamic duo of Moses and Aaron, I hope you can see they show something quite different. These are not heroes that we should be in awe of and kind of go, oh, wow. Uh, The focus on Exodus is not on the great tag team, but the great God who was working through even them, the ones that came from the tribe of Levi, the one with uncircumcised lips, the younger brother. It was this same Aaron and Moses They were the ones. Uh, I pray that we too may have confidence in the God who calls the unlikely, the God who's in control of all things and works through even the most unlikely of people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity this morning to uh, have a look at a a part of Scripture, very different time from our own, very different people and situation, and yet to see such continuity. You, the same God in whose hands holds the world and all life and we your humble servants please i pray this morning help each of us give thanks that you've called us and help us to simply seek to live a life that pleases you and honors you for the benefit of those around us and i pray that in that you may do mighty things and i pray this in jesus name amen